0: I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC, AAPA, and AMAPRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the Claim Credit button on the webinar console. Otherwise, please go to covid19.dkbmed.com, navigate to our multi-specialty episodes, and select the webinar to claim credit. Our learning objective today is to describe gaps in current testing strategy. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences, Incorporated, as well as in-kind support from DKB Med. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Yuka Manabe, a Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases, the Medical Director of the John G. Bartlett Specialty Practice, and the Director for Center for Innovative Diagnostics for Infectious Diseases. They will be discussing COVID-19 testing. Dr. Manabe, Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for both of your times today. really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, um, Faith, and uh, delighted Dr. Yuka Manabe, uh, is joining us uh, for the second part of uh, discussion of uh, diagnosis of uh, COVID-19. And this part will speak a little more about um, maybe uh, perspectives on uh, how diagnostics have evolved over the pandemic and, and also um, the impact of perhaps some future trends. So, uh, Yuka, first I might start off, it's been over two years since um, most of us have really grappled with this uh, pandemic virus. Um, What what have you seen uh, uh, as uh, important trends or contributions uh, to the um, uh, area of infectious disease diagnostics um, in response to the pandemic?
2: Well, first of all, I think that uh, we've had an unprecedented focus on diagnostics. I think it's amazing that uh, most Americans know the difference between a molecular test and an antigen test. This is something that, or a rapid test as some of them call it. This is a time uh, very different from in the past. I don't think anybody ever asked like, which test did you get, this one or this one, right? And I think that that's great. I think that having that kind of knowledge is helpful, I think for people in our, uh, in our field. Um, I will say that there was a rapid evolution Remember back in February when we were all worried that it was coming here to America, there were early cases at that time of 2020. Back then, we were relying solely on the public health departments to be doing all of the testing, as we have done for some of these unusual illnesses as they come in when they don't reach the unprecedented levels that we saw with COVID. Back then when we were relying on the public health departments, there was a huge backlog. You couldn't get a test fast enough, right? You would have to guess at best and we were waiting and we were getting confirmation many days after sending the test. By May of 2020, private um, companies had taken on the bulk of that testing, had been able to get emergency use authorization for molecular tests that could be run in any lab. And 99% plus of the testing that was going on was no longer going on at public health departments. And then we continued to evolve. And now we're at this point, um, because of a real commitment, I think, uh, by the US government to fund diagnostics from the beginning all the way to now, people are receiving rapid tests at their doorstep. Maybe not as many as they hoped, and maybe not during the peak of the Omicron um, uh, uh, virus, but. Uh, they got them nonetheless, and they they got them for free. And I think that um, we need to be able to make that happen if we ever have future pandemics in a way, I think we've learned a lot from this one, to try to help people figure out their status quicker. Um, So the next thing that I see coming is at home molecular testing, the most sensitive testing, but in your house, you do it yourself. there are challenges to that too, which is it will be expensive. Um, I haven't seen molecular tests that are inexpensive enough uh, the way rapid tests can be to be able to give them to every household, for example. But it may allow people to have the most sensitive test in their house. Um, the second is um, that we might be able to come up with tests that, that can tell you about more than one thing at the same time. We talked about combination tests in the last one, but imagine being able to figure out if you flew in your house and that would be great. Um, The other thing is to try to bring forward some of these um, platforms where you have direct detection, where you don't have to amplify anything that you, um, within say minutes or seconds even, you could say it's present, it's absent. And to have those platforms, you're going to have to amplify the signal of I found the virus against the background noise of all the other garbage that could be present in in a sample. And I think that If we can increase the signal to noise ratio, we could have some direct detection platforms, the ones that I call beyond PCR, right? Um, Paul, you and I are similar age and PCR is like kind of the, the, the new kid on the block from when we were young. When we were in college, we were first hearing about PCR and started using it effectively. I think the next thing is gonna be beyond PCR.
1: Yeah. And some of those are very interesting using uh, molecular fluidic technologies and, um, and, and hold at least uh, the possibility of uh, costs being lower. I mean, uh, my father-in-law, bless his heart, is, um, uh, I won't say a hypochondriac, but highly concerned uh, about uh, the COVID coming into the house. So my holiday present to him was getting a home molecular uh diagnostic uh platform uh and uh, that's been very helpful especially early on where you know omicron may be negative on antigen testing and you know you don't have to worry about doing serial testing and so on and so forth so uh, we saw the advantages of having home testing but to your point uh, you know is 70 dollars a uh a a test uh, there, which, but for convenience sake, you don't have to find somewhere to go and so on. Um, It it may facilitate um, uh, getting an accurate diagnosis to help uh, a physician that you could just go to a store and, and get a test.
2: Yeah, there's two points maybe that we want to make about that. One, when you test at home, nobody else knows about the result of that test, So it's difficult for us from a public health standpoint to track how many cases there have been. Many of you may have done a rapid test at home and had a positive and you didn't tell anyone. You may not even have been told your physician. So there's no reporting. So I think figuring out ways to close the loop to make sure that everyone that's doing those tests that are on the cloud, those get reported in some way so that we know that positives are happening. The other thing that's happened during the pandemic, which I think is really a, a an interesting area is mail-in self-collection. You self-collect at home the sample, you put it in something, maybe not in anything, maybe it's a dry swab or you put it into the buffer and then you put it back into the mail and you mail it in somewhere and they do the test. Then there is public health reporting. You do it from the privacy of your own home and um, uh, you can get a relatively rapid result really only dependent on the amount of time it takes to mail. That might not be very good if you're symptomatic, but if you're worried and you wanna just do it from the comfort of your own home, that might be really great. That's also been a shot in the arm for sexually transmitted infections. There's a huge number of STIs that are now being diagnosed in that way. So that's another thing that has maybe been a diagnostic silver lining during COVID.
1: Yeah, I think those are the uh, kinds of situations where even years ago, home HIV testing, you, only, you, you had a, a raised concern, but you would then prompt and follow through, but people felt like they could do something in the relative uh, privacy of their own home uh, for uh, perhaps more socially sensitive tests. But uh, uh, one of the things that I struggle a little with, um, because I do not only infectious diseases, but I have a small primary care practice is uh, coming to uh, how we used to deal with influenza. Uh, we looked at influenza. I said, well, uh, d- does my patient have a high risk of severe disease or not? Um, is there a lot of virus circulating in the community or not? Um, but I, I really did not go and pursue a rapid diagnostic test. I just treated empirically with Oseltamivir, for example. But now we may have a landscape with several viruses um, uh, that, that have therapeutic options. Um, do you see a future where, um, we're going to be more reliant on testing, uh, than in the past, uh, for example, during respiratory seasons, or, or, or do you think people are going to say, well, both viruses are circulating, uh, Oseltamivir and Uh, Paxilvid are both uh, relatively harmless. I'll just prescribe both, but increase costs that way.
2: Well, um, I would say that uh, there's never been a doctor that says I want less information. If you told someone they could have more information for an inexpensive amount and it was easy, you probably would order it. Part of it is that it's not that easy to get people in. And you also don't want to have somebody who has influenza symptoms in your office giving it to other people. So I think that as the options increase, we also wanna to try to think about things that are frugal innovation. I hope that some of the cheaper platforms come through and are available to everybody so that getting uh, having diagnostic certainty doesn't cost so much. And if we could get there, that would also be good for the developing world that certainly can't afford to pay $70 a test to tell if somebody has COVID-19. So these are the areas where I think diagnostics need to go in the future Um, The other thing is, uh, if you could also put bacterial pathogens in there in addition to viral pathogens, you might want to know, and you might also want to know whether or not they are resistant bacterial pathogens. And as we start to have this ability to have combination tests that can tell you multiple things for an inexpensive price tag, you might be very interested. And those are things that we're thinking about also in the area of STIs. So do you have gonorrhea? Is it sensitive to ciprofloxacin? could I give you oral ciprofloxacin um, as an option for someone who uh, can't come in or has some other reason to not want to get an injection? So these types of things, having more information would be better, but there's a cost trade-off. And I think that that's where we're coming. If we can make that price point lower, I don't know, would you, would you want diagnostic certainty if you could get it easily for a low price point?
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I could see, I mean, uh, an ideal future might be that you have a uh, uh, a rapid respiratory panel at the drugstore. You have a rapid STD panel. Uh, mm-hmm. You may have a rapid diarrheal panel, a rapid UTI panel. You can imagine these uh, potentially. Um, and it may be something that, um, you know, drugstores have a little room and you just provide that and they have the reader there. So you can do it. I mean, not, uh, instead of just in your own home, I mean, you can imagine these things, you um, becoming much more incorporated. We already see it with minute clinics, and urgent care centers, uh, where the barrier um, hopefully is lowered for people to get a test. Um, and you're right, going into a doctor's offices, uh, bringing an ill patient in there is something we didn't do during the pandemic.
2: I think it does bring up the issue of insurance companies though. Insurance companies have to recognize that that kind of clia waved point point-of-care testing is um, cost-effective. So I think understanding uh, the cost of that test compared to the cost of empiric treatment, they may actually say better to know and to Mm -hmm. treat specifically for what you have. Um, And I think that exposing people to less unnecessary medication is certainly something that we all strive for. So I do like that pharmacy model. I will say that pharmacies are coming under pressure now. You're going to do everything in the pharmacy. So at some point, uh, pharmacies aren't going to be able to handle all of this work. And um, we're going to need to have more people and more space devoted to that. And you have minute clinics, but you might have minute diagnostic clinics that will be slightly different. But insurance companies are going to have to recognize that as having value. Otherwise, they won't pay for it. If they won't pay for it, if no one's going to pay for it, I don't know that I would spend $100. I would tell my doctor, just prescribe me something. So I don't think people are going to go out of pocket for that. So at some point, if that's considered part of quality health care, and it gets paid for. That's going to be important. So this is a regulatory landscape that I think is going to get complicated, but is important to work through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you make some exceptionally solid points on this that um, uh, need to be carefully worked through. And and there needs to be advocacy, I think, so that diagnostic companies uh, don't feel like there's a limited market ahead because it's a self-pay option uh, compared to uh, being incorporated as part of their um, insurance coverage.
2: Yeah. And just so you know, there's only two states right now, for example, for STIs that will cover mail and self-collection. It's California and hopefully Maryland. That just came to the state legislature this, this uh, term. And um, so I think there's a recognition that we might be moving in that direction. But if you think about the continental United States, it's still very few states that are recognizing that as important but asking if you are a covered person with insurance that this kind of mail and self-collection ought to be covered by insurance companies so you can know your status. will be interesting to see how this plays out.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and perhaps as you started off this segment, the um, r- raising of diagnostic awareness, not only uh, of um, patients and the general public, but even of physicians. I mean, I think back to 2019 when I really had to explain the difference in a rapid influenza diagnostic test versus a a molecular test and and how they differed uh, becomes incredibly easy now uh, in this particular case. The um, last few years have brought tremendous advances. Um, You could, uh, in closing, what what are some of the gaps or or the needs that you think uh, should, that we should be thinking about not only as individual Practitioners, but uh, even within the diagnostic community, is uh, working with either regulatory agencies, funding from the government, or insurers?
2: It's a big question, but I think the main gaps are um, keeping an eye on cost, that trying to make sure that people start with the end in mind. So, developers should be developing things that we can afford, not so they can have the largest profit. Um, Second, keeping keeping an eye on the diagnostic prize, uh, making sure that we're uh, targeting the right things to be diagnosing and making sure we're not just getting information that we can't do anything about. Uh, um, And then, uh, and sometimes something that you can't treat is okay to know because then it may save you from giving antibiotics, for example, to somebody that uh, didn't require them. And then um, uh, finally, trying to have some equity of access, right? Uh, we saw great inequities during COVID-19 pandemic. And right now, we know that there's inequitable access to diagnostics. Um, people who have insurance might have an easier time getting. We should make sure that we have equal access, uh, not just here in developed countries, but also in the developing world, where diagnostic certainty comes at a much higher price and often is uh, uh, they, it's foregone altogether. They don't bother. And so um, I think that thinking about access as we have with vaccines and everything else should also apply to diagnostic access. And finally, that that, uh, innovation without access is really not innovation at all. So again, starting with the end in mind, making things that are innovative, but also can be available. I hope one day we get to the point where, um, you remember Star Trek, uh, where Scotty would just wave a wand over and tell people what they had, I mean, we're not quite there yet, but wouldn't it be great to walk through an archway that's detecting whether or not you might have one of these viruses and flag and say, maybe that person should not go into that arena. And I think that we are starting to see breath tests for volatiles, for direct detection, many things that I think are really exciting. Um, So um, I personally am super happy that this is what I decided to do with my life. I think that diagnostics are going to have their day and be part, an important part of the armamentarium of physicians and other care providers.
1: Uh, Yuka, I want to thank you for all your comments and agree that the pandemic has raised the uh, profile of diagnostics and and having someone with your expertise, uh, I think, is just critical and, and hopefully the advocacy to also um, make lives better for our patients uh, and, and also easier within the medical system by many of the aspects that you raised. So thanks so much. And thank you for uh, the audience for listening to these uh, two programs.
0: Well, thank you again to both of you for your time. We certainly do appreciate it. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit us at covid19.dkbmed.com. Again, thank you for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.